Well, let's go ahead and begin with uh, prayer this morning. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to come together and study. We thank you for this beautiful weather. We ask that your spirit and your angels will be with us, that our minds will be enlightened, and we can come see more clearly your, your character, your methods, your principles, and, and how to cooperate with you for healing in our lives. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen. And we are doing lesson number five in our quarterly, The Wonder of Jesus. And the lesson title for this week is The Wonder of His Works. And the wonder of his works, as you can guess by the title, we're talking about miracles. And so to start out the lesson this week, how are we to understand miracles, especially the miracles of Jesus? Any thoughts? They have meaning. At one point in John, he said, uh, you don't understand the meaning of my miracles. So, for example, if he sees a whole lot of sick people near a pool, but he only heals one paralytic man out of all that group. Why would he choose that man, and why on Sabbath? Okay, so we need to uh, think about what he is trying to communicate in, the, in his... I think you're right. There's messages being sent in the miracles. We need to look for those. And as we get into the lesson, what, what about this question first when we talk about miracles? When, when Christ performs a miracle, or God performs a miracle, is it a violation of God's law... Is he breaking the laws of nature and the laws of physics and stuff in order to perform a miracle? Or is he performing miracles in harmony with his laws in ways that we just aren't bright enough to figure out? Ladder. And if we can understand how he does it, does that make it less miraculous? We actually come to an insight, our wisdom, our knowledge, our, our perspective on the universe and the laws of nature grow such that we can actually understand exactly how the miracle was performed. Does it make it less miraculous? tell you that, um, for instance, uh, recently a biotech company treating uh, cervical cancer has come up with a, a novel approach in which uh, they take a bacterium called uh, Listeria monocyclogenes. This is a bacterium that has the ability to get inside a particular white blood cell called an, uh, an antigen-presenting cell. And the antigen-presenting cell, part of your immune system, its job is to, is to identify invaders to your body. And then once it identifies invaders to your body, it takes and presents the signature of that invader to the rest of your immune system, so the rest of your immune system will attack the evader, invader. Okay? Well, what they've done is they've taken this, this Listeria monocyclogenes, which uh, has the ability to get inside this uh, particular presenting anti, uh, uh, white blood cell, and they have uh, made it non-infectious, and they've caused it to produce a, a fragment of HPVE7, which is, which is a piece of uh, cervical cancer. Cervical cancer cells express this HPVE7. And so they've, they've given this bacteria to women now. Uh, it gets inside these antigen-presenting cells. The antigen-presenting cells now start going to the rest of your immune system and, and flagging HPVE7, and the immune system now attacks cervical cancer, and some women have been completely cured of cervical cancer. Because of this, it's, it's really miraculous, isn't it? Yeah, because we understand it, does that mean it's less miraculous? If we understand that when God performs a miracle, when Christ performs a miracle, that we could actually understand exactly how he's, he is uh, adjusting the neurobiology, the genetic expression, the various cell lines of our body, that he's actually working in harmony with the laws that he created life to work upon, does that make us less in awe? Or do we need a certain mysticism, a certain, a certain mystery? Do we need a certain, oh, what is that all about in order to be impressed by a miracle? Any thoughts about that? To me, I'm more in awe because it's so intricate. And what a balance. And if just one thing is off, it doesn't happen. Do you notice in society, though, there is this desire for mysticism? Mm -hmm. This desire for... Uh, not knowing, this desire for the magical. What does that say about us? Yeah. Well, I think uh, Jesus one time said, Blessed are you who believe who've seen me, but uh, more blessed is one who believes and hasn't seen. And so does that mean we should believe without any evidence? No. But, but, uh, it means that we, the latter generation, are never going to be able to see Jesus do those. So it takes more faith on our part and therefore more blessing to say, I believe in Christ, even though I've never seen him or heard him. Or... Yeah, possibly, but, uh, but on, on the other hand, where we live in today's society, 
do you think we have a disadvantage with all the history of the 6,000 years that's gone before, the Bible in our hand to read, the spirit of prophecy to help us? Do we have a disadvantage in understanding the great controversy and things? Or in a certain way, because of the whole history, do we have an advantage? You know, I've heard some people put forward that the angels in heaven who, who were unfallen, who could walk into God's presence, had an advantage over thus, those of us here in earth who are sinners with carnal natures and so forth and so on. But in a certain sense, think about that angel when Lucifer comes and tells his first lie. What basis would an angel in heaven have to know who is telling the truth between Lucifer and God? Remember, up to that point in history, had Lucifer ever done anything wrong? I mean, there would be no, there would be no evidence. I mean, Lucifer is your friend. He's always been kind, gracious, loving, always giving, always wonderful, always just like Jesus in every way up to the point that sin was found in him. And how would you be able to, what, what database could you draw upon to be able to tell the difference? See, they had a certain disadvantage, didn't they? Yeah. So uh, the fact that we have all this evidence uh, sometimes gives us an advantage. Stanley. It seems to me that, that we, we need to believe in a higher power in order to have hope. That, that's really an important piece of, uh, of um, this whole you know, idea that if it's just us, then we're in trouble. But if we can believe in a higher power who can do miraculous things, then there's hope that, that things can change, things can improve, that you know, our what? will not be... Uh, uh, <coughs> as harsh as it is now without any hope. So there's that, you know, that whole idea of if we can see signs, there must be something out there that can save us. I, I, one of the things I see in some of my patients is that they like the mystical and they like the magical because in a certain sense it removes any personal responsibility for them to actually do anything to change or improve their own life. So I have patients who smoke will pray for healing of their COPD and emphysema while they continue to smoke. You see, because God has, and, they, and they'll tell me, well, God can heal. God has the power to heal. You see, and they don't, and they pray for the magical. They pray for the mystical because then they don't have to actually apply anything to their own life that would be uncomfortable for them to apply. And so I think sometimes people like that. And so they have this hope that at any time that God might swoop in and fix the problems that they've been inflicting upon themselves. It's the same thing that pills do. That pills do? Pills well, are this mystical uh, cure or remedy for whatever you might have. You know, whether if you have pneumonia, this doctor's going to give you a pill, and in a few days you'll feel better, and you'll get well if you continue to take this pill. It's mystical. For some. (laughs) This will give me well. And so oftentimes uh, I have patients come and say, just just give me a pill or let me just put something on my face or let me just do this or that and I'll be all better. I'll look more pretty or I'll do this or I'll, I'll I'll be a better person. You know, in my practice, I have patients that struggle with this idea, the same thing, and uh, they have issues in their life they need to deal with, issues that, uh, that to deal with might not be comfortable. And sometimes uh, they'll disclose what they're really searching for. They're not searching for, well, for actual health and wellness. They're searching for a change in the way they feel. And I'll ask them a question. I'll say, if, if you had some really bad cavities and you were really bad pain um, and you went to the dentist, what would you want the dentist to do for you? And some will say, well, give me pain medicine. (laughs) Now think about the meaning. What What is that revealing? They're not wanting their teeth fixed. They're not wanting the cavities filled. They're not wanting health. They're wanting relief, you see? Now, so others will say, well, well, I want him to fix my teeth. You see, it's a different mindset. So questions like that can have a... And I have patients with emotional problems. They don't want to actually get well. They simply want a medication to make them feel better so they don't hurt anymore. And this is a challenge. Well, let's look at the various, back to the miracles. Let's look at the various categories or types of miracles. As you think about the miracles of Jesus, I want you to think about the different types. And I, I was able to list eight different types of miracles. So throw out some types of miracles. Put them in categories. Okay, start, start you off. Miracles of healing. There's a category. Miracles of healing. What else? Miracles of insight. I think it's not what you're thinking of, but I think it's miraculous. Okay. Oh, okay, like, like knowing somebody's mind. That's a ninth one. I didn't have that one. It's good. I like that. Miracles of insight. He could actually read people's minds sometimes. Could, could, could he not? 
Yeah, okay, that's a good one. Put that. Casting out demons. That's a good one. I got that one here, yes? Changing one thing into another. Metamorphosis, like changing the water to wine, a miracle of metamorphosis. What else? Okay, weather, which would be power over nature. So he could have storms, walk on water. So the miracles over nature. Raising the dead be under the healing. No, no, I, th- I put that one separate. Resurrection, resurrection from the dead. Uh, yeah, so we got healing, resurrections uh, over nature, which is water, calm storms. Curse of the fig tree would be a, a, a miracle over nature. Uh, metamorphosis, multiplication, the feeding of the five thousand, where he would take and multiply uh, things. What about uh, oh, flashing divinity through humanity? Remember when they came to arrest him? There was this flash, boom, and they all fell down dead. Okay, and then, and then. What about invisibility or vanishing? Yeah. Yeah. Did he not just disappear right out of the crowd several times? Yeah. Yeah, that's a cool one. I'd like that one. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I kind of like them all. But, uh, okay. So, yeah, reading the minds, the insight, yeah. Okay, so what are the common threads, though? As we put these together, there's a common thread that runs through. There's a couple common threads. How would you weave them together? What are the common threads that run through all these, these manifestations, miraculous manifestations? Is forgiving sins a miracle? Um, can you forgive somebody's sin against you? I can, yes. Somebody's sin against you? It's miraculous that I can. <laughs> Is it? <laughs> okay, so... I mean, really, it, yeah. it goes against my very nature. Okay, so the miracle, the miracle isn't the forgiveness. The miracle that is the actual regeneration of heart, that a sinner's heart can be restored. So it would be a miracle for God to forgive, or knowing God's nature, would it be a miracle for him not to forgive? You see, you see the point? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, for God, God is. The definition, uh, Exodus chapter 34, God is by definition forgiveness. That's his nature. But to change us to a point that we are capable of forgiving others, that's the miracle. It's the heart transformation. Yeah. Changing lives. Changing lives. Okay. But it is to us a miracle. And to have power over nature is to us a miracle. For him, it is not. Well, and we're going to get to that because maybe uh, let's just explore this a little further. Okay? So, the common threads. Well, first off, what kind of an evidence is a miracle? Is it really good evidence to base your faith upon? No. Why, is good, why, are, why are miracles not good evidences to base your faith upon? To base your, base, another word for faith is trust. To base your trust in someone as a leader, uh, to follow or to believe what they're teaching based on miracles. Why is that not good, good evidence? Well, well, let's go back to the very beginning in the Garden of Eden. How many of you have had your pet talk to you? Now, Balaam, Balaam had a donkey talk to him, right? And that was a miracle, wasn't it? And that, and that particular time, the donkey was speaking truth, wasn't it? But go back a little further, we got Garden of Eden, and there's a serpent speaking. Well, that's a miracle too, isn't it? So not, all, not all miracles are miracles. But it was a miracle that that serpent was speaking. If you're, uh, I will tell you, most of you in here would probably be stunned if you go home and your cat starts talking to you. Yes? Would you, would the question is, if your cat starts talking, think about how you'd react. If your cat starts talking to you, Will you react by, praise God, the Lord is sending me a message, the angel Lord is here, or would you be calling for an exorcism? <laughs> or a psychiatrist. Get up my howl doll. Okay? <laughs> okay. Uh, yes? Is by definition a miracle good, or is it just an act of wonder? Is it just something that... Something yes we, we, we yeah the, the whole idea of miracles is it something that violates god 's laws or is it something that he 's doing within harmony with his laws or something happening within the harmony of god 's laws that we yet can 't understand, and so because we can 't understand it, we call it a miracle. What would happen if we went back in time today as an ophthalmologist with oh let 's say uh, laser treatments on somebody 's eyes and we allow them to see? Or we do LASIK surgery, zip, zip, and, and now they walk away seeing. Do you think we, we, people would think we're miraculous and performing miracles? But we understand it. We go, oh, that's not a miracle. That's just science. Do you think God's miracles are just science that is on a, such a higher level than our ability to understand how the universe works that we say, say it's a miracle? So the, the threads, as, as you look at the miracles, it's use of power, isn't it? Use of might, use of power. Now, how did Christ, when he used might and power, what was the common thread in the, in the way he used might and power? 
for others. For others. For others. Notice that. Christ, and this is, the, this is the revelation. He's showing you. If you see me, you've seen the Father. Father is the source of all might and all power. Well, that power scares us. He's so powerful. It's scary to think about a powerful God. So Christ comes to say, okay, yeah, we got the power. Got the power. I'm going to show you how we use power. And so what did he use power for? Always to do good. Always to heal. Always to restore. Always to build up. Always to forgive. Always to cleanse. Always to resurrect. Always to feed. Always to help others. So God's power is flowing from him to benefit others. And in John chapter 13, interestingly enough, Jesus says, When all power had been given unto him, all power he just received from his father, just received from his father, all power, he got up and did something. He got up, took off his outer garment, got down on his knees, and washed the feet of his disciples. Think about this. Now he has all power in the universe, and what does he do with his power? He serves others. You see, this is a revelation to show us that God's use of power is always to benefit, to uplift others. Okay, then I've got to throw something else at you. If that's the case, then what about these miracles of invisibility? They're coming to stone him. They're coming to kill him. And suddenly, bam, he disappears. Is he using power to protect himself? Or what about in the Garden of Gethsemane when he knocks all the... Or kills all the men. And well, he didn't kill anybody. When he knocked him down, I would have... He didn't knock him down. He just sh- he gave him a revelation of who he was. Okay. He just revealed truth. And they fell because they could, their consciences couldn't take what they were seeing. Okay? When he but, but, when they're about to throw him off a cliff, but... When they're about to throw him off a cliff... saving himself. Could be. Could be. This way, but we have to read a little further. We have to read a little farther. His word wasn't finished. No, let me read to you. This is out of Zar of Ages, page 240. It says, When Jesus referred to the blessings given to the Gentiles, the fierce national pride of his hearers was aroused, and his words were drowned in a tumult of voices. These people had prided themselves on keeping the law, but now that their prejudices were offended, they were ready to commit murder. The assembly broke up, and laying hands upon Jesus, they thrust him from the synagogue and out of the city. All seemed eager for his destruction. They hurried him to the brow of the precipice, intending to cast him down headlong. Shouts and maledictions filled the air. Some were casting stones at him when suddenly he disappeared from among them. The heavenly messengers who had been been by his side in the synagogue were with him and in the midst of that maddened throng they shut him in from his enemies and conducted him to a safe place. So angels protected Lot and led him to sit safely from the midst of Sodom. So they protected Elijah in the little mountain city. When the encircling hills were filled with the horses and chariots of king of Syria and the great host of armed men, Elisha beheld the nearer hills, slopes covered with the armies of God. And so in all ages, angels have been near the faithful followers of Christ to protect them. So do we find Christ performing a miracle here to protect himself? Or do we find the angelic host at the direction of the Father, in this case, to protect Christ? You see, it's a very important distinction to make, isn't it? Because if we find Christ using his power to protect self, well then, wait a minute, we've got a problem here. Suddenly, God's using power selfishly. But Christ didn't protect himself. Christ would have let himself be thrown off that precipice. He wasn't about to act to stop individuality and freedom when it came to, came to himself. If you're going to use Mrs. White as a, a, a authority in, in Gethsemane, it wasn't Christ either. It was an angel that passed between Christ and the mob. That's true. That she does say that. An angel passed between the two of them. But there was another place where divinity flashed through humanity. I can't remember the, the place. It wasn't Gethsemane. Mount of Transfiguration. He was certainly transfigured there, and that was a miracle. So, yeah. Okay. So what does this tell us about God, Christ, and their use of power as we look at miracles? Do we have to be afraid of the one who has all the power? You remember the statement, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Now think about any of you if you had suddenly absolute power. Now I will have to tell you, you could not trust me. (laughs) Not that I wouldn't want to be trusted. Not that I wouldn't want to be trustworthy. But absolute power, I could walk anywhere, walk through walls, be invisible. I could snap things into existence and out of existence and, and read your minds and know everything. Think about, just, the, just think about the miracle that you know what everybody else is thinking all the time. You can read everybody's mind. Think what you could do with that information. Would you be tempted to use it to your own advantage? Well, think about Christ. He had all this and he never once used any of it to advantage himself. Yes. Everything he did was to glorify the Father. That's right. I was thinking about Passover being today and how all the babies were um, 
the firstborns were killed in Egypt and God's power in doing that instantaneously. And I thought, well, how does that explain, um, well, it's not a loving thing to kill children, you know, whether they're God-fearing children or not. And I just, I'm confused. Are you having trouble with the reason that God would use his power sometimes in the Bible to, to put some of his children to rest? Okay. All right. Let's talk about that then. Once mankind fell into sin in the Garden of Eden, we have two people, Adam and Eve, representative of the whole human race. In fact, tell me somebody on this planet who's not descended from Adam and Eve. So we're all descended from them. Once they infected themselves with sin, imagine, instead of using the word sin, which we sometimes have this, this hard time comprehending, just imagine they infected themselves with HIV. HIV infected Adam and Eve, and so every child born in the world is now born infected with HIV. Which means we're all born to do what? To die. To die. We're born to die. We're born terminal. We're in a terminal state. The whole race is now in a terminal state unless, unless something happens to bring a cure and a remedy, unless the, unless the situation is cured. Well, God had a plan to cure the species, to cure the race. In order for that to happen, the Messiah, the Redeemer, would need to come. So he tells the serpent, which is Satan, right in the Garden of Eden, that a Redeemer was going to come. He's going to come and, and crush your head, and you're going to bruise his heel. So did Satan know, before there was another child, before there was just two people in the world, Satan knew a Redeemer was on the way, yes? And do you think if you were Satan, you'd have an agenda to block that, to stop that, to keep your hold on this planet? Yes. And so Satan begins working to, to make sure that nobody on this planet will cooperate with God, to shut down an avenue, to shut down the channel through which the Redeemer would come. And thus he got to one point in the history of the human race where there was only one righteous man left on the entire planet. Noah. The Bible says only one righteous man left. The avenue through which the, the Redeemer would come had gotten very, very, very narrow. God needed to take some emergency measures to keep open the avenue, lest the whole planet, the whole race be lost. And so he put many of his children to sleep. Now, how do we understand that act? Well, I've explained it this way before. You may or may not appreciate it. But uh, um, imagine that you have uh, ten children. Five of them are over the age of 20. Five of them are under the age of five. And the ones that are over the age of 20 are rebellious, unruly, uh, mean-spirited, uh, child abusers, drug addicts, uh, violent. Uh, and they are trying currently to get your young kids and introduce them to drugs and to molest your young kids. Now, if you had the ability, and, and every time you try to intervene with them, every time you try to, to, to redeem them, every time you try to win them back to a loving way, they actually want to kill you. If you had the ability to put them in cryogenic storage, to just freeze them, not kill them, just freeze them in time long enough for your other children to grow up without being abused, and then thaw them out and let them finish their lives, as a parent, would you do that to protect your young kids? Well, that's what God did. He just put his kids in time out. Remember, everybody who's died the first death is coming up in the resurrection. Nobody has died eternally. Have they? And they come up in the resurrection. And Christ talked about two resurrections, the resurrection of life and the resurrection of damnation. And when they come up in the resurrection, they come up with the same current of thoughts they went into their grave with. They come up just where they went. They're just frozen in time. That's where they are. Okay? And so God is working uh, in, to, to bring healing to this whole planet, and he finds himself in circumstances where it's a terrible thing. Imagine, imagine how your heart would be as a parent to have to put some of your kids in cryogenic storage to protect the others. Wouldn't that be horrible? It's a horrible thing. I was uh, in uh, Florida... Um, about a month or two ago, talking with a guy, and was sharing with him these principles of love and so forth, and about how greater love is no man than to give his life for a friend. First John three sixteen. This is how we know what love is: that Christ gave his life for us, and we ought to give our lives for others. And he said, "Man, I don't know if if some crackhead broke into my house and was threatening my wife and kid, and I had a gun, I'd probably shoot him." And I said, okay, let's take that scenario. Let's say some 20-year-old crackhead breaks into your house. He's out of control. He's out of his mind. He's psychotic. He's hearing voices. And he's coming at your little kids and your wife to hurt them. You've got a gun, but that crackhead is your 20-year-old firstborn son. Now what do you do? He said, I don't like you very much. <laughs> and he meant that in a good way. And I said, that's God's problem. See, every one of us are God's children. You see? And we forget that. We forget what love is all about. And so when we see somebody doing wrong, then we want to retaliate. We'll have a right to hurt that person. But when we realize that person is God's child and God loves that person as much as he loves everyone else, then God is in a terrible situation. And so you, never, you can never look at God putting kids to rest in the grave and, and see God smiling. You have to see the tears running down his face as it's breaking his heart to do these things. 
unless you read in Hosea, Ephraim, Ephraim, how can I give you up? How can I let you go? But you were bent on leaving me. Or you read in uh, Jesus, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I've longed to take you as a hand, takes her chicks under her wings, but you would not. See, it breaks his heart. Yes. God then cryogenically freezes people. Um, there is no hope for them beyond that point. Not necessarily. Well, see, once once they're put into the grave, see, here's the deal. Once they're put into the grave, for instance, let's, let's take the flood. How do we know there wasn't some ten-year-old girl who wanted to get on the ark, and Daddy was mayor of the town, and Daddy wasn't going to be embarrassed by his little girl, and he locked her in a closet the day everybody was getting on the ark? Do we know that? <laughs> we don't know that. We only know that the people who got on the ark made it through the flood. You said there's no one righteous on the earth except Noah. He was the only one saved. All the rest were lost. That's what the Bible says. There's only one righteous man on the earth. That's right. Only one righteous man. But, you know, the 10-year-old girl still in flux. I mean, she may not have actually formed her identity yet. She may not have determined which side she's going to be on. Right? But had she been a 20-year-old plus, she would have made that decision, wouldn't she? Yeah, yes. And, and see, here's... For example, with the 20-year-old plus children who are cryogenically frozen, they don't have any... Well, the issue would be, as we persist in sin regardless of whether we fall asleep in the grave or not, we can sin and persist in sin so long that we actually destroy within ourselves the faculties that recognize and respond to truth. Paul talks about them searing their consciences with a hot iron. See, sin reacts upon the sinner, changes us, causes our reason to be warped, our consciences to be seared. And the only way God has to reach us is the working of the Holy Spirit, which is the spirit of truth and love, convicting our heart to woo us. He cannot force the will. But if we persist in sin long enough, rejecting truth, rejecting uh, love, rejecting the conviction, rejecting the drawing of God's power, there comes a point that we have so damaged the very faculties that are able to recognize and respond to truth that no amount of truth, no amount of, of revelation, no amount of light will have any impact on us. And this is what my personal belief is the reason for the third resurrection. I think it's the third resurrection. At the end of the thousand years, that resurrection. Okay, uh, the third resurrection. At the end of the thousand, or the third coming. Excuse me, the third coming. The end of the thousand years. The, the, we, we all teach that at the end of a thousand years, the New Jerusalem comes down. All the righteous from all time are already been with, with Christ in heaven for a thousand years. And all the wicked are raised. Well, let me ask you the question. From our understanding of the setting of the inspired writings, when the wicked are raised in the beginning of that process, are the gates of the New Jerusalem open or closed? Open. They're open. The gates of the New Jerusalem are open. Okay? Meaning that they, people could walk in. But none of them will. And it might even be that, uh, say, you are on the, you're in the New Jerusalem, and maybe you've got a little brother who's not. And so you get a, a banner, and you hang a banner off the wall of the New Jerusalem, inviting your brother to come in, and you actually shout, it's awesome in here, it's great, come on in. Still won't come. Why won't he come? Because they're so settled into the lies about God that they think you've been deluded. Now imagine, let's just turn it so you can kind of put yourself in their mindset. Imagine somebody was down with the Branch Davidians in Waco, and it was one of your relatives. And one of your relatives draped a sign over the wall of uh, Waco compound inviting you to come in. Would you come in? Because you believe they're deluded. You see, that's what's going to happen. The people on the outside are so settled into the lies about God that all the truth presented is just misinterpreted. And they just believe it's a big delusion. And they reject the evidence. And they won't respond to it. What more can God, could, what more can God do? And so the reason he raises is so the people on the inside, primarily, will be able to have that confidence to know. And so God has to conduct himself in such a way that once the wicked finally die... You, each one of you, can walk up to Christ on the wall of the New Jerusalem as tears are coming down his eyes as his children are dying and put your arm around Christ and say, it's okay, there's nothing more you could have done. And if he doesn't get us to that point, then he can't bring it to an end. Yes? Uh, on to the third and fourth generation. Okay, this is in the commandment he's talking about. Under the commandment it says um, that uh, God punishes the, or sends the, visits, visits the iniquities upon the third and fourth generations of them, so forth. This is simply the law. We're talking laws now. God works on laws, doesn't he? And the law of the universe is the law of love. He created other laws, too, that the universe runs on. Laws of gravity, laws of respiration, hydration, nutrition. Also the laws of genetics. Okay? He created those laws, too. And so if you, we actually know, if somebody in this room decides to go do crack cocaine, if you, one hit of crack or methamphetamine, one hit, 
will actually turn a gene on in your brain that produces a, a protein called um, cocaine amphetamine reactive transcript that was never produced before, that protein reacts upon your brain, increasing your craving for cocaine and amphetamine, so you want to do more. Now, once that gene is turned on, okay, it's producing this protein, and you go have kids, then you have a higher likelihood of passing on a gene in a turned-on, flipped-on state that will make them more vulnerable to having addictions themselves. And you're passing it down to the third and fourth generation. Third and fourth generation because it takes three and four generations for bad genes to be diluted out if you're actually marrying healthy. Conversely, it might go worse if you're marrying people and concentrating the bad genes. Seriously. An addict marrying an addict, the kid's going to have more bad genes. It's not going to be diluted out. Okay? And so that's what that's talking about. It's not a curse from God. It's that God created this universe to run in certain ways. He created this species. And he told Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply in the world before sin. And he said, let them, uh, and they were to make beings in their image in the world before sin. But when they sinned, they started having beings in their image, and so their children started coming forth just like they were. They were sinners, their kids come forth sinners. So that's what that's all about. Okay, we've got to move on, man. One of my friends, teachers, suggests that if there was anyone outside the city walls who had uh, um, wanted to be in, had chosen, that, and he stood up and said, hey, I want in, that God will send angels out and bring them in. It wouldn't surprise me a bit. God wants to save everybody who uh, was willing to be saved. No, wouldn't surprise me a bit. The God, God's attitude is all about salvation. Um, anyway, Adam was created. We talk about this creation situation. Adam was created, was not only given the ability to procreate beings in his image, but was all, Adam also given dominion. Dominion over the earth. He was to govern the planet. Now, what do you think that dominion entailed? Do you think that before sin, Adam actually could control the forces of nature? He was to govern the planet as God governs the universe, wasn't he? This, this universe, it says, I mean, this planet, it says in Corinthians, is a, a theater, a spectacle unto angels and to men. Adam and Eve were representative of the Godhead. As the two come into unity of love, they give, create, give of themselves, creating beings in their image, just as the Godhead come together in unity of love and create beings in their image. This was a microcosm of the universe. Do you think the dominion that Adam had included power over the forces of nature? Were there any forces of nature that needed control? Well, in other words, gravity. If he said, oh, you know what, I'd like to do something, and he could just move things like Christ could move things. He could walk on water like Christ could walk on water. You think he could have those, those powers over nature? Well, when Satan tempted Adam and Adam submitted to the temptation, Satan claimed the position that Adam had, didn't he? As the governor, ruler of this planet. He's even called the ruler of the powers of the air, isn't he? Now, does Satan demonstrate power over the forces of nature? Remember the first chapter of the book of Job? Satan brought a terrible storm that killed all of Job's kids. He shows that he has the power over the forces of nature. I'm just thinking outside the box that really God may have delegated or gave Adam power over the forces of nature. One other thing that Christ did in all his miracles, you'll notice none of his miracles actually changed character of an individual, forced will. Miracles were always over things of an inanimate nature. See, he can heal your physiology without changing your character, can he? He can, he can take, make a paralytic walk, but you still have the same heart, the same attitude, the same mind, the same character. He doesn't force your will. He can, he can open your eyes. And interesting, the miracle of healing the blind man born from birth, I don't know if you've thought about this miracle. This is a cool miracle. This is not just removing cataracts. See, when you're born... From when you're born blind from birth, the way the brain works, when you come into the world, you have hundreds of millions of neurons more at birth than you do by the time you're eight years of age. The first eight years of life, the brain is busy killing off neurons by the hundreds of millions. And a lot of times people go, wait a minute, I needed those, okay? Um, but, but the way to think about it is Michelangelo's block of marble when Michelangelo gets it, and Michelangelo's block of marble when Michelangelo's done with it. Michelangelo's done with it, he has less marble, but now he has a masterpiece. Okay, the brain comes into the world prepared to be acted upon by environmental forces, educational forces, experience, and neurons which are being used are, are strengthened, kept, and the networks expand. Neurons which are not used are deleted, and you've heard cases of children who are locked in cages, and no one ever spoke any language to them until they're 10 or 12, and social services rescues them, and they can never learn language because the neurons of the temporal lobe that, that are responsible for speech were deleted. The brain didn't use them. So this man that was born blind not only didn't have eyes, his optic nerves weren't developed, the occipital cortex was all atrophied, but not only on top of that, 
He doesn't have a database to even know what he's seeing. You see, he's never learned from childhood, that's a tree, that's a bush, that's a ball, that's whatever. Okay, He doesn't know. There's no, there's no database in his memory cortex for him to even register what things are when he sees them. And so when this man was healed of his blindness, Christ not only had to heal his eyes, but his optic nerves regenerate in a septal cortex and give a database so that he would know what he was seeing. It's really kind of cool. But in all that, it still didn't change free will, and it still didn't change his character. So the brain regeneration that he did for him did not change his character or his individuality or violate free will. So notice that in those miracles. God, God can heal brains, but he won't change characters by miraculous uh, uh, force against your free will. We have to cooperate with our free will to experience the miracle of character change. Yes? And furthermore, that was done on Sabbath. And so he picked out a guy in the crowd who has never seen and gave him sight. So I believe that the meaning of that miracle is that on Sabbath particularly, God's intention of a gift on Sabbath is to give us sight who have never seen. Spiritual insight. Notice um also, that every person that Christ healed of illness died. Think that through now. Every person he healed of an illness, blindness, the issue of blood, paralytic, as far as we know, they weren't translated to heaven. They all went into the grave. They died. And why? What was the purpose? Was the purpose, in other words, did Christ come here primarily to heal people of physical malady so they can live an extra 25 years on this earth? Was that his purpose of coming here? No. Then what was said earlier, that his miracles were actually, uh, certainly he, he was demonstrating his desire to relieve suffering, but it were designed to open our minds to something much bigger, much more important than just 25 or 30 extra years of health on this planet. He was designed to teach us that God is wanting to be the conduit. Christ is the avenue, the channel through which eternal healing comes. That he wants to heal us from the malady of sinfulness, of character, that we will have eternal life again. And all these uh, healings, I think, were, were demonstrative of that process. Yes? Back up just a little bit. That you're suggesting that there's something fundamentally different between curing a brain and changing a mind. Yes. You see, a brain is hardware. A mind is software. For instance, when a child is born into the world, uh, all of us in this room have an English software package that was uploaded after birth. We did not come into the world with a brain that spoke English. That was uploaded into our brain, into our mind. It's part of the mind. The brain has hardwired reactions. Like if you hear a bang, boom, you will fire your amygdala, which will set off your adrenal cortex, which will give you all the stress hormones, you'll, all this kind of stuff. Uh, but then the prefrontal cortex where you do your thinking, your mind catches up and goes, that was just the backfire of a car, interprets the meaning, and gives you a direction of course. Calm down, it's okay. Conversely, you hear a bang, boom, the whole, the whole reflex, the hardwired brain reaction happens, but in this time your mind interprets it as it's a terrorist with a gun. Well, then you get a different reaction. See, the mind interprets the meaning of the data. The brain registers the data input. And so the mind is what is being healed. We are to have the mind of Christ. We get new minds now. We get new brains at the second coming. Good news. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Going back a little bit also with the um, Christ having dominion over um, the physical world like Adam did, um, the fish jumped into the net. Adam may have had the same control over animals that, that Christ also demonstrated of inanimate objects as well. I think so. In fact, there's some, there's some Ellen White comments that talk about that, that all its nature was a subject to Adam's rule, and all the animals were subject to Adam, uh, Adam's direction, until the, until the rebellion, and then the animals no longer listened to Adam, and they were in rebellion and threatening man. Yes? After the flood, um, in the uh, speech that God had with Noah, he, said he assured Noah that the animals would be afraid of him. From that point forward from that point forward, which was an assurance to him that he would not be destroyed by these animals turned loose. So again, another miracle on God's part, a change to an emergency measure. Right. Yes, that maybe wasn't there. Good point. One more thing about, about revelation of truth. This is out of Zara of Ages 475. And the question is, what about judgment? Was the revelation of Christ's use of power to heal, to restore part of the judgment? And listen to this comment, and I'll, I'll leave it with you guys. It says, a group of Pharisees had gathered near, and this was in the aftermath of his healing the blind man. This is the miracle of healing the blind man. It says, a group of Pharisees had gathered near, and the sight of them brought to the mind of Jesus the contrast ever manifested in the 
effect of his words and works. He said, For judgment I have come into this world, that they which see not might see, and that they which see might be made blind. Christ had come to open the blind eyes, to give light to them that sit in darkness. He had declared himself to be the light of the world, and the miracle just performed was an attestation of his mission. The people who beheld the Savior in his, at his advent were favored with a fuller manifestation of the divine presence in the world had thus ever enjoyed before. The knowledge of God was revealed more perfectly... But in this very revelation, judgment was passing upon men. Their character was tested, their destinies determined. Why? Wait a minute. What does that mean? You see, when truth comes to your mind on any subject matter, when truth comes to your mind on any subject matter, truth that you're a smoker, and the truth comes in such a way that convicts you that smoking is going to kill you if you don't stop. Well, you've, got, you've, you've got been convicted of the truth. You've got to now make a choice. Do I accept the truth? Do I apply the truth to my life? Do I reject it on any subject matter? And the more truth you have, and this is how, by the way, we understand texts in the Bible about Pharaoh. Pharaoh's heart was hardened. God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Pharaoh hardened his own heart. The Bible says it all three ways. Well, how was Pharaoh's heart hardened? What was God's role? God revealed truth to Pharaoh. And more truth that was revealed, Pharaoh now had to make a decision. Will I accept it? Will I reject it? When we reject truth, what happens to the heart? It hardens. And as the heart hardens, we're passing judgment on who? Ourselves. And put that with the third angel's message. Fear God and give glory to Him for the hour of His judgment has come. Traditionally taught, the hour that He's sitting up there to judge all of us. No. The hour in which the greatest revelation of the truth about God through all universal history is being made at this time. As all the pieces of the great controversy are coming together, the post-1844 period, the cleansing of the sanctuary, all this kind of stuff is coming together. The, the, sun is, the sun of righteousness is rising with healing in His wings. The latter rain is being poured out. Light is happening. And as the light happens, we have to make a decision. Are we going to judge God to be trustworthy or are we going to judge God to be untrustworthy? And as we pass judgment on the kind of being we see God, we pass judgment on ourselves. Russell. Just to review, you said there were a couple of threads that were running through yeah. all of Christ's mission. Yeah. I missed them. Okay. Thread one, always helping others. Okay. U- use of power, always to help others. That was, the one, that was the main thread. There was a second thread. Never violated free will. It was always over things of an inanimate nature. So always to help others and never in violation of individuality. That's how the power is always manifest. You won't find a manifesting power to violate individuality. Okay, so those two things. Those are the two threads. All right, now we're finally getting to our memory text. <laughs> um, and I've got to see what, what part we want to cut to. I guess we're actually going to have to skip that and go over to Sunday's lesson. Somebody read the first paragraph for us in Sunday's lesson. The way Matthew tells it, the healing of a leper takes place as soon as Jesus comes down from the mountain. Fresh from delivering the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus runs smack into the furrow of human need in the valley. The first challenge he confronts is leprosy, a symbol of our sinful human plight. Jesus touches the leper, what to make of that, and leprosy is gone. Such is the power of our Lord. Now, do we agree? Now, we all agree leprosy in the Bible is a metaphor for sin, correct? And do we agree that when Jesus comes in contact with sinfulness, Jesus cleanses from sin? We all agree with that? Anybody want to argue that point? Okay, good, because we're all in agreement with that. All right, we don't believe that when, when Jesus comes in contact with sin, that Jesus gets defiled by sin. We believe that Jesus cleanses from sin, right? All right, then, if we agree with that, and the metaphor in the Bible used for Jesus oftentimes is the metaphor of the blood of Jesus, right? Isn't that the metaphor often used? Okay, and Jesus said, unless you drink my blood and eat my flesh, you have no part with me. Okay, so the question I have for you, if we believe what we just said, that when Jesus comes in contact with sin, Jesus cleanses from sin, Jesus does not get contaminated by sin, then why do we teach that in the Old Testament sanctuary service, all through the year, when sacrifices were made, sin was confessed on the head of the sacrificial lamb, the lamb represents who? Jesus, and the blood was taken into the sanctuary, the sanctuary got contaminated by sin. You understand we teach that, right? We teach that when sin gets confessed on the head of the lamb, and that this is all through the yearly cycle, and that uh, the, the blood was taken by the priest into the sanctuary, that the sanctuary now stands contaminated with sin, thus constituting the need for the sanctuary to be cleansed. Why do we teach that if we actually believe that Jesus cleanses from sin? See, if you, if you believe this idea that taking the blood into the sanctuary contaminates the sanctuary, then suddenly sin 
and the blood of Christ coming together, sin is contaminating the blood of Christ rather than Christ cleansing from sin. You will not find anywhere in the scripture, not one place anywhere, challenge you, go home, do your Bible study, where the blood of the sacrificial animal ever contaminates. Everything the blood or the flesh of the sacrificial animal ever comes in contact with is always made holy in the Bible. Every time. Okay, comment. Just a question. Is the sacrificial lamb always Christ, or is it a representative of the sinner? My understanding is it's always representative of Christ. The Lamb of God slain from the foundation of the world, John. John the Baptist. That's the uh, Passover lamb. But what about the lamb that you, as a sinner, put your hands on and then slit his throat? Yep, same thing. Um, But is that lamb not representing you and what would happen to you if you remained separated from God? Can you give me a, a text that would support that theory? I mean, it's a nice theory, but let's look for some evidence to back that up. In describing the process, um, it describes that if you have a sin, then you are to come and lay your hands on the animal, etc. And it sounds like you are taking the place of yourself on that animal. So the animal is slain as a representative of what would happen if you remain outside of God's will. It, it, it may sound that way, but let's look for some evidence. What evidence do we have to back that theory? See, we, we have no problem exploring theories, but we need evidence to back the theory. Amen. Well, what about the... There's other animals that were slain, too. Pigeons, bulls, and okay. It seemed like the, but, the more power a person had, the more responsibility they had, the leaders, priests, if they sinned, a lot of times it upped the ante, then it was like a bull or something, yeah, but something the, more expensive. They all represented Christ, though. But, but the, leader's, the leader's sacrifice was not treated the same way as the individual sacrifice was. It wasn't, it wasn't eaten by the same people. It wasn't taken to the same places. So your suggestion is that the animals don't represent Christ except the, the, the Passover animal. And the atonement animal. On the spur of the moment, yes. Okay. Yes, over here. Okay. The idea that the blood corrupt or defiles the sanctuary seems to, to prevent us from properly understanding the cleansing of the heavenly sanctuary. Amen. What is going on? That's the point I'm trying to get to. We have had a barrier in our minds to understand what God is actually doing and the whole plan of salvation because we've had misunderstanding about this whole process. Yes. I I think there's been a huge misunderstanding with respect to the substitutionary theory of Christ being our sacrifice. Now, I I don't want to have to explain that. (laughs) Okay, I will. I'll be glad to, because that, that's a great point. Um, there's, and, and we're, let, me, let me tell you where I believe this stems from, this, this problem. It stems from misunderstanding of God's law. And we can understand God's law in basically, in my opinion, one of two ways. God, as the great uh, creator and uh, magistrate of the all-universe, enacted laws, created laws, imposed laws. And thus, and as the great creator and the governor and the sovereign of the universe, once he enacted his laws, in order to be just, he had to inflict penalties to maintain his laws. And so we have imposed law that are maintained by the authority of the universe imposing penalties for violation of the law. That's traditional way of thinking about God, his law. And thus, when you break the law, the minimum penalty God told Adam and Eve, in the day you eat, you will be in time out for three days. No, you will die. Which means, if it's an imposed law, well, then how are you going to die? Well, in order for me to be just, I have to execute justice upon sin, unless the sinner. So I have to punish the sinner for his sin, and I have to execute them. But I love, but I'm also love, so I don't want to do that. So I, I've got this cool way to, 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 to game the system. I will send my son, and my son, who is never going to commit a sin, I'll kill him in your stead. And then if you accept his payment in your behalf, uh, then the law has been met, I've been forgiving, I've been gracious, and we can all pretend like everything's okay. That's one, because we have an imposed law, and once you have imposed law, there's always always around the law. Or there's another way to see that God's law is not imposed, it's natural. Natural law, what's natural? Example, law of gravity, the laws of health. Laws of health are natural laws, and they are laws. We're not out of bounds by calling them laws. They're laws of health. And the ultimate law, the law of the universe, is the law of love. But when you violate a natural law, do you have to impose a penalty? If you apply it to tie a plastic bag over your head, violating the laws of respiration, okay, it's a law. Does God have to send an angel to punish you for doing that? 
No, it's a natural law. Jump off a 40-foot building. God will not send an angel to inflict penalties upon you. He doesn't have to. It's a natural law. Infect yourself with, a, with Ebola virus. God does not have to send an angel to, to punish you. But once we are in the sick state, once we're terminal, once we're dying, then God, if he wants to save us, in harmony with his law, has to fix the problem. You see? And so Christ came as a substitute. The confession on the head of the animal it does several things. It teaches us several things. What is the law that all life in the universe is based upon? Can anybody give me an example in nature? Because Paul says in Romans 1.20 that God's divine nature, God is love, is seen in what he has made so we can see this law in nature. Give me an example from nature. We have a water cycle. Okay, exactly, the circles. The the cycle of the oceans, rain, rivers, streams, back to the ocean again. The constant, never-ending giving, 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 flow brings life. If your body of water separates and doesn't give, it stagnates and everything, and it dies. The Dead Sea receives, takes, 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 but it lets nothing flow out, and that's why it's called the Dead Sea. It's dead. If you don't give, you die. The law of love is all of life. You give out carbon dioxide to all the plants, we give oxygen back to you. It's the only way to live. If you say, I don't want to give anymore, I'm going to keep my carbon dioxide, it's mine, you can't have it. Well, the only way to do that is stop breathing and die. This is the law of the universe. It's the circle of life. And so when you confess sins on the head of the animal, the sinner then cuts the circulation. The blood circles, never-ending circles. As long as it's circling, we have life. You cut the circle, life dies. So we have this object lesson teaching us that, hey, the reason sin comes is not an opposed penalty, but it's because it's a severing of the law of love. Now, we not only have that happening, but we have it happening on the Lamb. Why is it happening on the Lamb? Because the Lamb represents Christ who came to take our condition, our sickness, our terminal disease state upon Himself for the purpose of paying a legal penalty so Dad won't be mad, or for the purpose of curing the condition. And He came to cure the condition. So you have a child with leukemia, you want the leukemia to go into remission. remission. You want the, the cancer cells to remit back to their previous healthy state. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. Without Christ's life, victorious life, and death, our sinfulness could not remit back to God's original design as he created the world in Adam to be. And so that's what's actually happening and going on. Yes? I used to remember as well that the animals that were sacrificed were without blemish, without spots. That's right. We are not without blemish or without spot. Christ was. And for the animals to represent us, it doesn't make sense to me that why, why would they have to be without blemish since we are not? I mean, we are not Christ. That's an excellent point, and that would be evidence that would mitigate against the theory presented earlier. Okay, that these represent Christ. Okay, but that's good, though. So, I mean, this is okay to raise ideas. It's okay to ask questions. It's okay to have theories as long as we're willing to look at the evidence and follow where the evidence lies. So I appreciate you bringing that up. That's a good thing. The scapegoat, no, because there's an actual distinction made at the time. One is the Lord's goat and the other's not. Okay, so there is a distinction made in that particular context by the... Uh, that's a traditional theory. That theory doesn't, I don't think, necessarily hold. Let's stay with the issue at hand, and that is, do, when, when, when we confess sin on the sacrificial animal, does the animal then become sinful and then transfer sin to the sanctuary, and the sanctuary is now contaminated? Or when sin, when Christ took our sinful condition upon us, and, and the battle between God's law of love and Satan's law of survival to fit is selfishness, uh, waged in Christ, who won? Did love win, or did Satan's sin win? In Christ. Love won. Love destroyed. Christ became, he who knew no sin became sin, and he dealt with sin. He destroyed sin. That's what Christ did. He victoriously overcame he restored in, in well, okay, the two antagonistic powers. Greater love is no man than to give his life for a friend. Survival the fittest. Greatest love is no man to give his life for a friend. I will give all I have for your good, including if it comes down to it, give my life for you. Survival the fittest. I love myself so much, I'll do whatever I have to to protect myself, including if it comes down to it, kill you that I might live. <laughs> give my life that you might live, kill you that I might live. These are the two principles of war. And in Christ... They warded out. In Gethsemane, did Christ experience temptation to save himself? Feelings, passionate feelings. That if he followed his feelings, if if Christ would have gone with his feelings, would he have gone through the cross or would he have gone back home to heaven? I mean, see it. It's there. The evidence is before us. He experienced temptation. And if you want some scripture to back it up, Hebrews 4.25, he was tempted in every way, just like we are, yet without sin. And James chapter 1, starting in verse 13, says that we are tempted by our own evil feelings. 
Now, if both of those passages are true, that means Christ experienced temptations by powerful feelings to act in self-interest. But instead of acting on those every time, he said, no one can take my life. I will give it freely. And every time the temptation came, he chose to give his life rather than act to protect himself. And this is why he had to die, because at anywhere along the way, he wasn't like the two helpless thieves on the cross, helpless, couldn't do anything. He could have stopped it at any time he wanted. He could have stopped it. But what does it say? He would not use his power to stop death's approach. So he gave his life in love rather than acting to protect himself, which means in the person, Jesus Christ, sin was destroyed. Death was vanquished. Okay, And so, thus, when you take the blood into the, uh, of the sacrificial animal into the sanctuary, you're not taking sin into the sanctuary. You're taking the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. And so, how should we understand this whole model? Should we take the Old Testament shadowy system and use that to try to interpret Jesus in the New Testament? Or should we take the life of Jesus as the key to unlock the mysteries of the Old Testament? Which way should we look? Okay, so, so Jesus said, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood... So where is he applying the flesh and blood? To a building in heaven or to hearts and minds? In the Old Testament, the law of God was contained in the box in the most holy place. In Hebrews 8.10, the new covenant, I will write my law in your heart and mind. Okay? So the metaphor of the old system, and I don't have time to go into it today, we've got three minutes left for class, but I can tell you if we went through the symbols, every one of them teach this one thing, God's plan to heal and restore you back into oneness with God. And all that process is a process of cleansing, restoring, regenerating, and bringing us who are far back into union with Him and the Father. At one meant. That's what it's all about. So the blood being applied is the blood of cleansing, restoring, regenerating, recreating us back into righteousness, healing us back into oneness with God. And thus the Day of Atonement is the day that all the universe put it together with Ephesians. The mystery of God is, the mystery of Christ is that through Christ he is working to bring all things back into one, even under one head, Jesus Christ. That's what the Old Testament system teaches. We have an error in our thinking that the system is contaminated by the blood of Jesus. The blood of Jesus does not contaminate. Yes? We're told that when Christ took our sins upon himself on the cross, that he became sin. Does that mean that he was then defiled with sin himself? No, he took our condition upon himself and cured it. Okay? He battled out, so he became, he be, yeah, he became sin means he took our condition, our sinfulness. And this is a difference between, have you heard the idea that all the sins ever committed individual acts, past, present, and future, were placed upon Christ at the cross? I don't, I don't find merit in that. I don't think the evidence supports that. I think what he took upon himself was our condition, our sinful condition he took upon himself, our sinfulness, and cured and fixed and healed it. That makes a whole lot more sense to me. These are great questions. Yes. Brad Cole has in his latest The Good News, where Jesus said in the Beatitudes over and over, It has been said, or you have heard, but I say unto you. And it seemed to me that that's illustrating what you said, that the Old Testament was there, and Jesus himself stood up and said, but I say unto you, it's this way. Right. Uh, for those who don't get the notes, if you'd like them, they're on our website right next, to the, uh, right next to the audio. There's a PDF file you can download because in the notes I have a lot of Bible texts that document what we're talking about here. The Leviticus text, the Hebrews text, the text in Thessalonians. So we have texts documenting all these different things that we don't have time to go into today. And obviously a lot more. We have uh, in our notes today like 11 pages and we got through like five. Any closing questions about what we talked about today? We, co- we covered a lot of ground. Yes. God's act, or Jesus' act of dying on the cross, wasn't it remitted us or put our sinful nature back into remission simply because He showed us, like He? No, no, Christ. Boy, sorry. <laughs> That's a great question. Christ is a unique being in all creation history. He, he Adam was, born, was formed out of the dust of the ground, perfect, sinless being. Eve taken from the side, sinless being. You and I were born from a sinful mother, sinful father. Christ was neither of those. Christ had a sinful mother. 
Galatians 4.4, born of woman, born under law, but his father was God. So Christ is a combination of the perfect righteousness of God and our sinful condition. So in the person, Jesus Christ, his human life experience on this earth, he experienced temptation in every way like us, but his heart and mind was in constant unity with the law of love. So through his life experience, he was actually, moment to moment, day by day, decision by decision, rewriting into this creation the law of God, or write my heart, law on their hearts and minds. Christ was the mechanism through which the law got restored into this species. And then once Christ's victorious life at the cross, he becomes the source for us, and he says uh, to his disciples, it's expedient for you that I leave, because if I don't, the comforter won't come, and he's not going to come and speak on his own. He's going to say only what I tell him, and he's going to take what is mine and make it known to you. And so he takes the character of Christ that Christ achieved in his life and reproduces it in us. The Holy Spirit is a regenerating power taking the victory of Christ, and thus it's no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me. We have the mind of Christ, and, it is, and so it's Christ's victory transfused in the metaphor, we're connected to the vine, the, the vine, all those metaphors. Put them together now, it's what I'm telling you, and you will see that Christ achieved the victory, restoring in his human experience. And even if no other human being, by the way, is saved, because of Christ Jesus, you understand, who was a real human being, the human race will always be in existence. The human race will not die because of Christ Jesus. As long as we have one panda alive, pandas are not extinct. Okay? Because of Jesus, the human race was saved. The only question remains is how many other specimens will join him? And it's free. We have a free remedy, and we all can join him, but it's up to us. So it's a good question. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you have not left us and abandoned us in the sixth state, but you have come to bring us to truth, to win us to trust, and you have actually procured a real remedy that heals and restores. Help us to truly trust you. Open our hearts. Pour out your spirit. Regenerate us to be like you, that we can live free, free from fear, free from insecurity, free from domination of old bad habits and weaknesses of character, that we can be regenerated to be like you, that we can be lights in this world, showing others your your true character that you can come soon. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen. Amen.